Welcome to Practical Access. I'm Lisa Deeker. And I'm Rebecca Hines. And Lisa, I know we have a great guest on this episode who's going to give us some insight after years of, of top-notch research in this profession. You want to introduce her? Yeah, so we have our dear friend and colleague who happens to be enjoying life beyond her job these days, uh, Dr. Barbara Aaron, who is an expert in speech language communication. And, and Barbara, we're so excited too because you really understand that unique language issues of our middle school and high school students. So welcome, we're excited you're here. Thank you, pleased to be with you. So the first question I have for you is just what practical advice would you give to parents or teachers who have a student who's kind of just struggling at that middle school, high school level with language? And probably if they're getting any speech and language, it's probably limited as our students get older. What might be something you might say, things to think about or practical things to do in the classroom or at home who are still struggling with language? Well, um, I think, Lisa, the first issue is actually um, recognizing that many of the difficulties that adolescents have are language-related. And that's a, an important heads-up for parents and teachers because the tendency, as, I'm, as you know, is to lose that construct that language is an important issue. You know, the tendency is to think, oh, my, you know, I worry about language with my little kid. By the time he gets to be a teenager, language is no longer an issue. It's all about academics, you know. Well, there are no academics without language. So I think the first practical tip is, when you've got adolescents who uh, continue to struggle in middle and high school, to make sure that, that you advocate that people look at language as a possible factor, because the chances are it's not on the radar screen at that point. I mean, and that's critical. And that's true of teachers, too, that, you know, teachers don't necessarily think of language as the basis for academic learning, which we know it is. So that to, that to me is the first thing that, that I would say of a practical nature is to make sure it's on people's radar screen. That's a, that's a great point, Barb. And I know that actually all three of us on this podcast have a special interest in, in adolescents um, and secondary students. So it's, a, it's an important topic. Um, kind of building on what you were just mentioning uh, over the course of your career, so has, so have you found these these issues to become almost invisible as kids get into the higher grades? Do you think that teachers like do you think they they're just not noticed? I I think uh, the problems uh, the the language nature of the problems is what is doesn't get noticed. I mean, people know kids are struggling. But they don't ascribe, they don't, they don't uh, attribute any of the struggles to language. It's like, you know, well, yeah, well, he's having academic problems or he's having social problems or he's having emotional problems. Well, yes, but, but what's underneath all that? Are, right. are there any language issues that are underneath those things that need to be addressed? And Lisa, you mentioned 
initially in your question that as kids get older, we, we tend to see fewer speech and language services. Well, you know, that hurts my heart. <laughs> it does, <laughs> it, me too. It's hurt my heart for many years. And, and, and it's, it's not like that in a lot of places. A lot of places have become enlightened and have actually really begun to seriously serve middle and high school kids. But more importantly, you know, I don't want, I, I wouldn't want parents to think uh, or teachers to think that, that because kids might have language issues, it's the job of the speech-language pathologist. Because that, that isn't the case at all. I mean, you may or may not have a speech-language pathologist involved. I mean, I certainly would advocate that we have eyes on, you know, speech-language pathologists take a look at kids. Uh, but but it's, it's so important as kids get older for... Uh, services to be coordinated for, you know, the big C of collaboration is critical because, because when kids have substantial problems, um, again, either academically, socially, or emotionally, as they get older, these are, there are no quick fixes here, you know, and having a kid see a speech language pathologist maybe, uh, you know, twice a week is not going to fix anything. And so the issue is to have real wraparound service in the sense of uh, teachers who are enlightened, who look out for language problems so that the history teacher in high school says, you know, what's complicated about what I'm going to deliver here today? What are the, what are the pitfalls language-wise that I should be on the lookout for to help all my kids, you know? And then the special ed teachers who might be working with kids, uh, you know, put that into play, put the whole language issue into play with what they're doing. So I just want to be sure to mention that. Right, right. Well, you know, I know, you know, again, when it comes to those older students in particular, and even the upper elementary grades, I know in my experience, um, we didn't know always what was the cause of students starting, especially to just withdraw for academically. Yeah. And this idea that, you know, I would rather um, look lazy than, yeah. than dumb, you know, yeah. and, and honestly, there yeah. are so many kids that I've had in the past who had that, who had that feeling. And I, I think that um, as you're mentioning, you know, these might've been masking issues of, of language that, that yeah. people just didn't recognize. So what do you think, can yeah. I just follow up because I, I, wanna, I don't want to lose this thought. The important, the other important thing, Becky, in terms of looking at uh, language with adolescents is that by the time kids get older, they pretty much have figured out how to mask their problems often, often. And so uh, what people will often say is, oh, this, this adolescent doesn't have language problems. I can't shut him up. <laughs> he just talks and talks and talks. Yeah, but you have to look, listen carefully to what the nature of the communication actually is because sometimes kids, and I, I use the term, it's a very technical term, run at the mouth. <laughs> so, so kids who, who run at the mouth sometimes do that to kind of say, see, I'm talking, and you listen to what they're saying and it's really not making a lot of sense or it's very... Uh, repetitive or you know and so the idea is that um, you know when we look at language in adolescence we really have to look across 
all the language processes. It's not just spoken language, but it's written language as well. And I just want to make that point because if parents are listening to this and say, well, I have an adolescent who's struggling in school, but he doesn't talk funny. He doesn't have to talk funny to have language problems. I and love the, it. You know, and the chances are adolescents, most of them won't talk funny and still have substantial language issues. Well, and it's funny because I know we all have children and, and those of you who are parents are listening. Uh, I love the run in the mouth syndrome because I think adolescents do that well and they believe anything that comes out of our mouth isn't of any value anyway. So, you know, again, some of this I think also gets lost in just this whole teenage pushback, you know, it's moodiness because of whatever. But yeah. one of the things that I've always adored and you've always been such a friend and a colleague is because I'm going to put you in the camp of what I like to call an inclusionista. You know, you, you have always believe speech and language therapist, as you said so beautifully, should be a part of the classroom and should be a part of what's going on. And we do need that coordinated services. What are some advice you might give practically to speech or to special ed teachers for kids that struggle with both, you said, communication and writing at the adolescent level that should be present when they go into those co-taught language arts class, or as you believe, science class, social studies, language is everywhere. Right. So what are some of the things that you're like, you know, make sure in your toolkit is blank. What are some things you would share with our listeners in that regard? Well, I would, I would say for my speech language pathology colleagues, the, the issue be again, because, because, even if there are services at the middle and high school level, an SOP is never going to be able to see a kid enough to make a dent. So the, the real game changer has to be uh, incorporating and collaborating with, with the special ed teachers who might be involved or the regular ed teachers. And for me, the practical thing is helping to troubleshoot. In other words, looking at kids and the difficulties they're having with, with the language lens that SLPs come with. I mean, that's how we're trained. And so even if they just look at kids and look at what, what practically, look at work samples. You don't, you don't have to do diagnostic t tests. You know, look, look at work samples. Look at, look, look at what kids are writing. You can tell a lot about a kid's language status as they get older, especially by what they're writing and what they're not writing. And so really helping to troubleshoot what could be a language basis to a problem and then helping teachers to figure out, well, then how, how might you present this lesson in a way that is more language sensitive? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to be a speech language pathologist to, 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 to present in a more language sensitive way. And I'm going to give you an example because this, this really, hit me one time I was um, I actually had a, a practicum student who was working in a, a high school class and uh, this is when I was an LD coordinator by the way this is years ago this wasn't <laughs> I was I had a, um, a secondary LD teacher in a practicum and it was a history class and I remember the history teacher talking about the Revolutionary War and he was talking about the English the Redcoats the Tories, <laughs> the British, and, and uh, there was one other name, and it was the English, the Tories, the Red Coast, the British, and, and, I, and I knew that the kids sitting in that room with language issues thought that there were four different armies. 
he all he would have had to say was i just used the term english but i could also have said british i could also have said red coats and then if you know and then what i would say to that teacher is on the chalkboard or whatever now it wouldn't be a chalkboard probably <laughs> but 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 behind you just write british equals english equals red coats equals tories simple things like that that teachers can do that's what i call language sensitive teaching just and and you know the the issue is there aren't just kids with disabilities who struggle with language there are kids whose first language is not english mm -hmm. uh you know there are all kinds of kids who struggle with language that teachers by doing more language sensitive teaching can really help and that's where I think SLPs really come in to help teachers get there, you know, in collaborating with them. So I just wanted to make sure not to lose that point. No, that was, that was a great point. And, and, and again, a really practical tip for teachers, and that's what we're looking for. So um, as, as you're thinking about, about your, your work, you know, I know red flags for me always were students not completing assignments. Yeah. And I would ask myself as I, I was formerly a language arts teacher, um, I would ask myself, well, what can I do to get them to turn in assignments? And so, you know, we all use our, our simple strategies. You just mentioned an idea of giving some visual support, you know, for students when they're making these mistakes. What, what else would you advise for teachers to increase just the word production of students you know like we can i used to focus a lot on can i get this student to write more or to interact more etc do you have any simple tips for just increasing that type of production well i one of the um again drawing on this whole notion of the integration of language processes. One of the uh, sort of transition activities I've always liked to do with kids is, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to get a kid to write on a topic, you know, okay, just talk it, you know, tell me what you know about that, you know, just talk it out. And then record that and play it back and take notes on that. Now, it's true that spoken language and written language are different in the sense that uh, 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 written language is much more formal and you your syntactic forms the structure the structure of the language you use when you write is more complex than when you speak but as a transition activities for kids who are reluctant writers or who can't you know i've, I've worked with kids who you know like you, you can see them struggling to actually put the pen to the paper or now you know typing on a, on a computer the the idea is maybe to transition from a spoken language version of what they want to say to a written production and then scaffold okay you know work work with what they write down and say well okay but if we're writing we wouldn't actually say it that way which is a very important thing that adolescents have to learn that there is a difference in formality between what you, the way you write and the way you talk. Now, I think uh, at this point, social communication and texting have sort of uh, blurred some of those lines. But there again, kids have to be taught, and we, we call 
in the biz, we, we call it register, right? Register. right? What register are you using? Meaning, you know, if I'm, if I'm having cocktails with you and Lisa, um, after COVID, of course, um, <laughs> if, we're, if we're having cocktails somewhere, the way we're chit-chatting is very different from even now, even this podcast. This is not a very formal podcast, but it's certainly more formal than if we're sitting in a bar having a glass of wine. <laughs> so, so kids have to learn that. They have to learn that. They have to be taught that very explicitly. So, yeah, fabulous advice. And, and I do think, you know, language across context is one that, that students do have to learn. I, I'm a little shocked when we recently had a student undergrad here that interviewed and showed up in a shirt that I'm pretty sure he slept on top of the night before. I don't even know how you get something that wrinkled and said, hey, what's up? That was his intro to us. And I'm like... <laughs> Well, I can tell you what's up. You just lost the job, you know, and, and you haven't been here 60 seconds, but he was very kind and I was nice to him, but it really was a waste of his 15 right. minutes in mind. So anyway, great, great yeah. advice. So I, Becky got to talk about language arts. So I'm going to be a little selfish and go in another content area. And I love, cause I know your background is across content, which is what makes you such a great leader in our field at the secondary. We just really need more of you. So please keep doing the work that you're doing. But in math and science, you, you talked about this concept and I loved it of language sensitive teaching. I think people mm -hmm. often think about in math and science, you know, it's not about language, it's about doing processes or procedures. What advice would you have for teachers who teach math and science to do better in language? And here's why. I find many of the, the teams that I work with across the country, and I know you do, the students are failing the math and science test because yeah. they have language. So what, what could they do better in the math and science genre in the language area? Well, I, you know, I'm glad you asked that, Lisa, because that is such, uh, that is part of the mythology that really does us in uh, at the secondary level, that math and science are less language related. Man, algebra is all language. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> it, it is. But I mean, when you talk about processes, how are you processing without words? I mean, you need words to process the, the mathematical um, constructs, right? So, so math and science are as much language as anything else. And what's interesting is, um, you know, there is a cons, there is a, a an idea. It's not a new idea, but it it's has over the past oh ten years or so received more attention. And that is the idea of what's called disciplinary literacy, the idea that each and every discipline has its own way of communicating uh, among its members. So mathematicians talk to each other differently from the way scientists talk to each other, differently from the way historians talk to each other. And so kids have to gain entree into all of those ways of communicating. And so in science in particular, there are some structures in science that make it particularly problematic. I'll just give you an example. So, so in science, you know, we can talk about um, what the body does to digest food, and then we turn that into a, a structure called digestion. And so that whole taking verbs and making them into nouns and all of that, that's something that is done more in science than is done in any other discipline. And it's very different, very difficult. The other thing is there are certain structures uh, in science that are used a lot like 
uh, this might get too technical, but passive voice. So it's like, you know, something, some, somebody is, is not doing it. It's being done to them, you know? And so the, the suffice to say that there are some very specific ways that scientists write that then kids have to learn to read. If the scientists are writing the text in science, then the adolescents have to learn to read them. And that can be problematic because it's a different way of communicating. And, and the challenge, of course, with adolescents is that they go uh, from science to math to history to language arts, all, all in the space of a few. I always draw the analogy that it's like um, having breakfast in France <laughs> and then going to Italy for lunch, which is a good idea. You have nice pasta for lunch. And then, and then you go to China for dinner. And, and, and you, have to, you have to adapt to those languages all in the space of one day. Well, kids have to do it all in the space of a few hours. And it's, that's, that's hard for all kids. But for kids with disabilities, switching gears like that, that's tough stuff. So a practical, a very practical thing that I would ask teachers to do is so the math teacher says hey hey welcome y'all to third period this is math and we're gonna talk like mathematicians we're gonna read like mathematicians and we're gonna write like mathematicians and you're gonna listen to me with your math uh hat on you know and then have when the kids move to the next period okay it's history so we are historians now and we're going to communicate like historians and so we care, we care about perspective, we care about, you know, so just giving kids a heads up for what are the highlights of the communication patterns in that discipline. Love it, love it. Well, so my last question, and this will wrap up our podcast here, uh, and Becky and I are, again, so excited you took time out of your uh, time of being a grandma, I think, uh, to be with us for a few minutes today. But I would love to hear from your perspective to wrap us up today. You're such a visionary in our field. Ten years from now, what do you hope people will be pushing for practically for our adolescents in language and schools? What, what do you think the world should look like if you, you could share a little wisdom with us as you continually know the status and where do you think we might go? We know COVID's gonna put a blip in that radar, but when we get back to brick and mortar, what do you, what do you hope to see in middle school and high school for kids with language needs? Oy. Well, what I hope to see depends on whether or not we're in a culture that appreciates research. That to me is a driver. That is, and that is gonna be a driver for our future in education. We are not now doing the things we know we should be doing. Mm -hmm. So we're not paying attention to the research right now in practical application. And so if we continue to be in a culture that downplays the importance of research, uh, it, it, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic, but I am an optimist, so I'm gonna assume that's not gonna happen. <laughs> Right. That, we, that we are going to recuperate and, and we are going to once again believe empirical data. And so if, if that happens, then we will have more collaboration. We will have more um, speech language pathologists working with teachers. We'll have more teachers interested 
in, in doing language sensitive instruction. And if we do that, we're going to have um, more successful kids. I mean, we didn't talk about MTSS, uh, you know, multi-tiered uh, systems of uh, support, but that whole, in, in my vision, if that really works, that's, that's our best deal. That's going to be our best deal. But there's so much baggage associated with that right now that we'd have to get rid of that baggage and really get people to understand that there has to be one system to deal with kids, not three separate systems. Great. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Aaron and our friend Barb, uh, on uh, Practical Access. Uh, we look forward to uh, folks sending us questions on our Facebook page or on our Twitter feed at Access Practical. Thank you again, Dr. Aaron.